Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube, or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend. Tell family. Also, get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here. Truth and Rhythm shirts. Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also, want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Jazz. Welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Studio by way of Detroit. Longtime Parliament Funkadelic guitarist, singer, songwriter, and producer, Andre Fox Williams. Thank you so much for joining the show, Andre. How are you? I'm doing very well, and uh, thank you for having me, Scott. And uh, everybody, please stay safe, and uh, and and and, uh, and everybody, just please stay safe. So how's 2020 been working out for you? How are you dealing with all the craziness and, you know, the, the uh, uh, lockdowns and the uh, drag outs and all the craziness, man? Well, I'm, I have to speak from a, a point of truth and existence. I'm, I'm, it's, it's being handled very well by me because Detroit isn't tearing up stuff like a lot of other cities across the country. Detroit... And, and, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I'm a 70s baby with, with everything was really crazy. So to see these cats not tearing up stuff in this city is very admirable for me. First to say, I, I, I hate to see that shit is being torn, excuse my language, things are being torn up everywhere else. But Detroit is being good. As far as what it's being for me, I'm a Detroit baby. I'm a, I'm, I'm a war baby from way back. So I have learned how to deal with my circumstance, which isn't that bad. And thank you for asking. But every, I, I, I'm just, I'm just watching what's happening, and I just, it, it just keeps on reminding me of we can do better. 
not only in Detroit, but everywhere. Musically in Detroit, the music scene in Detroit, you know, I don't really get out there like I used to. You know, I see these other cats doing their, their funk thing. I just stay away because I'm a, I'm a true deli. And uh, I'm waiting on the right questions so I'm going at it. But I want to be nice first. I am doing well. My family's doing well. We are good. The funk is still doing what it do, regardless to what anybody thinks. The funk is what it is, and I'm down. So I'm ready for you, Scott. Cool. Glad to hear it. And, you know, it'll be a few weeks before folks see this. And so hopefully, you know, the madness will have died down and we'll be in the place of positive change by then. I, I hope and believe that. And I'm glad to be uh, available to you right now. So when that happens, the positivity that I'm speaking will move forward. And I understand you had your own run-in uh, many years ago. Was it in Los Angeles? Or where was that? Uh, Scott, that was in Los Angeles, like uh, a couple weeks after the Rodney King incident. I, ran, I got into a situation with the uh, Los Angeles Police Department. They whipped my ass, tasered my ass, uh, maced my ass, lost me for weeks in the uh, Los Angeles County uh, jail system. Thank goodness I have protection and settlement from uh, the L.A. Police Department, Scott. And I'm going to say this to everybody who ever sees this, and I know you got a massive following. I'm not saying this to be negative. Fuck the police. <laughs> they are so, it's a negative institution. There's a situation called the Blue Line that I thought was only in Detroit, but it's everywhere. And the police institution is nothing more to me than a slave gang, if you're not black. But I made it through that. I hate to see what's happening with all these other people, uh, 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 George Floyd, uh, Aubrey, and all these people. It, it hurts my heart. I'm an old man now. I ain't, I, ain't, I ain't even doing funk music no more, but I want to. But I think I want to be more activist, branded, and minded because I can speak from experience. It happened to me. So I'm not saying what I see on TV, Brother Scott, this shit happened to me. I want a settlement from the LAPD in the early 90s. They told me never to come back to California. I don't think anybody knows this was me and George Clinton. We didn't tell the band. Okay. Uh, Bruce Peterson, George's one is, but let's say that happened then. I'm just saying it happened to me. I know it's real. I'm not about Black Lives Matter and this shit. I'm about my life. It matter at that point. So everything that's happened out there in the street actually happened to me. And they paid me to leave California. And this was in the 80s, late 80s. You dig? So I can respect and understand what everybody's going through. But I can say, since I survived it, we don't have to do it negatively. We can do it another way. You do it that way, go ahead and do it that way. I'm for both sides. You dig? And that's where I'm at. It's not mean. I don't like negativity. But but I was on the other end of that. They left me in a jail cell supposedly dead until they realized I wasn't dead. You can, It's documented. So with that said, it happened to me. Black lives matter. Everybody lives matter. It should happen to me. 
If it hadn't have been for one particular individual that I will not mention, I would be a dead man from back then, and we, me and you would not even be talking. So I am about whatever we have to do to make the injustice of uh, uh, black injustice or any other minority that's not white, which I can't tell white from any white mugs because my, I wasn't raised like that. You dig where I'm coming from? Mm. And my, per, per, my, my situation with George Clinton and P-Funk and nothing, it was never a racist negative. Uh, it was always a, uh, a, a unilateral colorization of uh, uh, production and, and making things happy for people to dance to. You dig what I'm saying? So what happened to me, it was 30 years ago. I never spoke about it until this day, but it happened to me. And whatever any of those police officers have done to anybody, whatever you got coming, you got coming. And that's how I feel. I'm not saying go do nothing negative, people. So if you, however you edit this, I'm not saying do anything negative. But it happened to Mr. Andre Fox Williams two weeks after the Rodney King incident in the 80s. And God, I'm alive. Them fuckers tried to kill me in California. So I know it's racist. I know it's bad. But guess what? We still finished the Incorporated Thing Band album. It was doing that time. We still finished the record. I still got my parts on the record. You know, it was George's record. It wasn't my record. It was George's record. But we still finished the record. They don't even call it that no more. I'm, just, I'm telling my age again. Check this out. We finished the project and things progressed as they progressed, and things are where we are right now. But that, sh that shit happened to Andre Williams. It happened to me. And if you, and anybody asks me again, I'm going to tell you the same. The police are a gang of blue or whatever county they're in, and they, it's not good. And I'm glad that things are getting ready to change, but I don't want it to change in a negative way because I survived it. Well, you know, Next. of course, I'm from L.A. and grew up there, and, you know, Thank goodness I never had to deal with something like that, but I can vouch there are just a lot of assholes out there that I had to grow up with too. So, <laughs> man, oh, yeah. you know? Yeah, 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 they did that shit. And guess what? I'm not going to say they glad, I'm glad they did it, and I was the one, that one of the ones that it happened to, but they paid me to leave California in 1991. They paid me to get the fuck out of there which lets me know that they admitted their guilt and my life went on. And that's that. But it's been going on since 16-something. So this is nothing new. Let's do something new. Next. Absolutely. All right. Well, man, I'm glad you're here with me, uh, especially based on knowing that now. Yeah, bro. And uh, let's talk some music. Thanks. Now, now, let's talk some music. Let's talk yeah. some music, man. Um, hey. so let's go way back, you know, uh, you're a teen and, uh, you're, you're hanging around, yes. uh, some of the Funketeers. How did you, uh, uh, yes. I guess Tracy was a good friend of yours. How did you get involved in that whole scene? Okay. It, it, okay. I can sum this up real, real easily, Scott. Uh, this is like 78, 79 or whatever. I, um, uh, I had a friend who knew some people in one of George's offshoot bands, the Parlette Group. The girls were hot back then. And I had a friend that I went to high school with who at that time knew those people. 
I didn't know him, right? So we skipped school or something crazy because I had a car. He didn't. And I end up uh, driving some P-Funk members to a concert. I don't can't remember how this shit actually happened. But I remember going over to on the west side of Detroit on Coyle Street, picking up some P-Funk members, taking them to the Pontiac Silverdome because they had a funk festival thing. You know, I'm, I'm thinking this guy's lying. I don't know. These people get in my little car. I take them out there. Well, check this out. Honest, true story. And I want to tell this. We jumped out of my little yellow duster, Ray Davis, Jessica Cleves, me, him, some other people, and, and, and jumped into a limo in the front of the Pontiac Silverdome and drove around to the back and jumped out of the car like it was the thing to do. Right then I knew shit was really funky because I'm like, how the fuck I'm bringing you here to drive in the car, drive around the black to jump off superstar style. That's how I met them. Uh, that very day, that very day, there was a room. <laughs> this is so funny. I never told the story. And I heard this song coming from behind this door. And it was actually turned out to be knee deep. I walked in this room. It was Bootsy Collins, George Clinton, and Trey Lude. I'm just letting, I'm just bringing this to how, how I got with Trey Lude. George's son. I walked in the room. Nobody told me to leave. Nobody said anything. Tracy would look like to be about my age. I walked over to him, rolled up a joint. Tracy and I smoked a joint uh, at the Funk Festival, 1979, Detroit, Michigan. And he said, hey, Andre, come on out here and sing this part on Flashlight with me. I'm like, you're not George's son. I still didn't believe him. You go, I am George's son. You come out here and we do this. Two weeks after that, I ran into a guy named Michael Clip Payne, downtown Detroit. Guess what? He needed a fucking ride. I had the same car. I gave him a ride to the studio. The next thing I know, I get offered a job to drive George Clinton around Detroit. I'm 17 years old. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's how that happened. Everything after that is not a blur. Everything after that is how I applied myself, not only to be his gopher, their chauffeur, driving those cats around, but I end up being in a such, in, in more than one sense of the word, a babysitter, a chaperone to George's two sons, George, Daryl Clinton, and Tracy Lewis, because we were about the same age. Tracy and Daryl were doing a record called Trelude. I already had a band of my own. I never told anybody. Still to this day, at that time, they didn't even know I played, Scott. I didn't tell them anything because I'm still going, whoa, what the fuck, right? I ended up dealing with Tracy and Daryl, did the Trey Lude record, and, you know, you know, subsequently moving George's house uh, out in uh, Irish Hills, Michigan, if I remember correctly, and we traded record the the, the, uh, the the projects on Daryl. They still record my music because you know it was their thing. They didn't start recording my music till later when I had a deal with somebody else. You dig? But for the first th two or three years, uh, to answer your question, I ended up meeting uh, Tracy and Daryl, and then we, we we became brothers and friends and stuff. And George took me in. I am and Ron Dark, you know, for a few years, which meant I worked for everybody in P Funk. 
okay? And everybody in P-Funk was cool with me until I wasn't a damn driver no more. When I was turned and got in the band and became a guitar player, that's another story. I hope we get to that. Everything changed. But that's how it happened. Wow. So, but you already had some musical inclination before then. I was already a musician. I've been playing professionally since I was nine years old. Wow. My parents used to have the blue bars to allow me to play with older guys. Johnny Hooker is my fucking first cousin. Let's get this shit straight. I, I didn't come from no ghetto off the street. I'm already a talented man. I was already a musician. I just didn't tell them. I told Baylou and them. By the time George didn't figure out that shit, they didn't like it. I'm going to strike that. They didn't understand it. They thought I was like one of George's kids. And I got a whole bunch of terrible stories that George's kids did that I got blamed for even before I was in the group. It turned out with my situation in P-Funk, which I don't put down, but the, the, the truth got to be known now, today. Next. Okay. Um, what what was your like first impressions of uh, people like George? Well, you only you, when you say people like George, you only mention one person. Well, people like so let's say, let, let's, say let's say George and and Gary and I don't know if Bootsy was around, but Bootsy and um, Bernie and some of those cats. Yes. Okay. Oh, I'm glad I'm glad I reiterated that. My first impression of George Clinton, I was scared to death of that man, so I didn't fuck with him, first of all. Okay. Boosie Collins um, was a very nice person to me when I was a teenager. I still have a quarter that Boosie Collins gave to me at the Travelage. At this particular time, George had his band sent to this place called the Travelage Hotel on Jefferson Avenue in Detroit. I had to pick them up and do all this shit. Well, this one day I didn't have a, a, a quarter for something. The first time I met Bootsy, I said, damn, that's you, Bootsy. Can I have a quarter? I need something. He gave me a quarter. I still have it. So I thought he was cool. Bernie Worrell, my first meeting of Bernie Worrell was in that same hotel, the Travelage Hotel, where I had to go pick him up. I, I wasn't even working for George yet, and they were telling me to go do stuff. And I went and picked Bernie up, and he was a very nice gentleman, and we, we kicked it. Gary Scheider, I got some great memories there, but I got some very other stuff with that man. I'm talking to him. I don't want to talk to Gary. Gary's Gary. Uh, a lot of people try to say, and I don't want this to be put out like I'm saying something negative about Mr. Scheider, but a lot of people know him, knew him. And sometimes things were fucked up, just as with George, you know, whatever, and I, that's all I'm going to say. I, 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 I don't want to say anything negative about anybody, and I'm not gonna. But my to answer your question, my first impressions of those guys, Bootsy was very cordial and a nice man. I still have the quarter Bootsy you gave me, my man. Uh, Mr. George Clinton gave me a job, him and Ron Dunbar, to drive those guys around. Thank you, did that. Uh, you guys probably didn't think that I was a musician ready to get on the mothership, but that happened. Bernie Worrell was a very nice person. Eddie Hazel lived with me for four years. I'm 16 years old. How the hell is cats living with me? 
I got my own shit, my own everything. These cats are starting to live in my house. Okay, okay. So let's let, let's let's move a little bit further. I think that I my run-ins with every all of my big brothers and all of my seniors and all of my elders in P Funk. I love you, but it wasn't all gravy all the time. But it was cool. I'm still breathing. And the, for the ones that are still breathing, it's wonderful. And I got some great stories with everybody, and I got a few stories that aren't so good. Yeah. You know, I, I'm ready to tell it all. <laughs> I, I've heard That's that there all. was... I heard I'm happy, was... though. I'm happy, though, Scott. George Clinton, George Clinton was good to me, man, you know, until things got sour with us. But he was a nice fella, man. You know, remember the nice shit? I remember the terrible stuff. I remember the stuff that didn't happen what was supposed to happen, writer's credit, all and best. But George was okay with me until he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And now I think that we're okay again. I really I really believe that we're I mean, it's forty years later. Come on, man. We we gotta be okay. No matter what, I forgive him. You know, I hope you forgive me. And everybody else involved, I don't want to go into the too much of uh of uh, you know, giving you the whole vibe about the names you, and I'm gonna say that all of those guys, not just freaking Clinton, not freaking Boosie, I'm talking about Felipe Wynn, Walter Morrison, uh, 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 Ray Davis, all these other cats that were around in there that saw me as a child and watched me get my shit together and watched me go through the same thing that they went through. So I'm not going to try color this thing like it was super rosy all the time because it wasn't. Uh-huh. And hey. when I finally got in the band, it was wonderful. Andre. But then it wasn't. Andre, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, um, you mentioned Junie. Yes. I, I want to stop you for just a moment because Junie is such an enigma to yes. most people. What Can you tell us anything about what Junie was like? Yes, I can. I have first act, first hand experience with uh, with uh, with uh, Miss Morrison, Junie. Uh, okay, Clinton had come and reproduced a song I wrote called Quickie. Right? It was a single. I had to deal with Junie for days and months at a time. He was the nicest, funniest, most direct producer, friend and musicians that I ever met in my life. He was very direct. He knew that my musical skills were way under his genius-isms, but he dealt with me on my level and brought me up to his level for the time that I spent with him, not only with that song Quickie, but when I had to pick him up and take him to do George's project in Detroit, in Malcolm Franklin, you know, all of those kind of cats, you know, and I think he was a wonderful man. I spoke to him two months before he died. I spoke to him. He was still living overseas. We actually talked. So my my, my interactions with Junie was very good. He didn't treat me like an underling. You know, he didn't treat me like I wasn't talented enough or, you know what I'm trying to say? He treated me like a musician and I knew that when I played something he didn't like, he didn't like it. And we worked through it, and we got a production done. 
Uh, I, not only did I work with him on that uh, on, on that quickie song, but we, it's a song that was never released called Re Rockin' of a Rockstar. And uh, he was the producer, him and Gary Scheider. And something happened where Blackbird was like, I'm through. I, I don't want to do this no more. This is not the first time Blackbird did this while I was there. I hear Andre, you play the guitar. I don't know what to do. Junie kept it on the record. The song's called Re Rockin' of a Rockstar. It's a great song. I hope George releases it. But to answer your question, Junie was very patient with me, and I learned a lot from him about playing in the key and a little bit around it and stop. <laughs> and he's a great guy. And I'm, I'm, I said to you, I spoke to him a couple of months before he passed away. As a matter of fact, I was at my brother, my friend's house, Amp Fittler. I was at Amp Fittler's house. We were recording on this project that we were doing. Uh, this guy, Tony Allen, who just passed away. Afrobeat drummer, Tony Allen. I, uh, I was in Tony's band for a minute, along with Amp. And we were doing this thing, and Amp, Junie called, and I just happened to be at Amp's house. And he said, put Dre on the phone. And we talked for a minute. Two months later, he was gone. Uh, well, yeah. Um, Quickie, one of my favorite tracks on the George Clinton albums, for sure. Um, that's a great. Yeah, that's, sure. That should have been a big hit, I think. Well, I think so too. I think so too. I put a lot of work into it, as, as well as everybody else. You know, I don't want to go into why it didn't do as big as what it should have done because I got my own reasons for that. But I think it was a good song. Thank you for sharing that, Andre. Um, yes, sir. You're welcome. You know, I, I've heard that there were some uh, crazy escapades involving you and Tracy back in the day. Um, can you share a couple of uh, those stories with us? I will, but I got to say this before I say anything else. It wasn't a, a lot of crazy escapades with me. It was a crazy escapades with Tracy. Okay. Okay. I just happened to be the fucking guy driving his ass around at 17 and 15. So so I don't know what you're talking about, but anything you ever heard is true. I remember, I remember, I remember this same place called a Travelodge with George so passive with his children, and I love him for that. He was so passive with his kids. I go to pick Tracy's ass up to go to a session to do whatever. I don't remember what song. I don't know what it was. And the and the and the and the, and the, uh, the cleaning lady goes, "I can't let you in that room." I go, "Why?" She goes, "Somebody took a poop behind the guitar, behind the TV." And I go, "Well, it obviously wasn't me. I'm coming to pick that guy up." And she finally let me in the room to get Tracy. Dude, not only did he do that, he shit it in his guitar didn't tell me we're going to the studio I'm going what's going on man my car did you take a bath or something man and he started laughing he go look he take the shit in his guitar and he said I shit it behind the TV we're gonna see what they think when we get back well guess what happened when we got back to that hotel room our shit was in the lobby we couldn't stay there no more okay that's one thing Trey Lou did I love Trey Lou to death but I don't know what kind of point he was trying to make my dear brother, Tracy Lewis, used to do the most lewdest shit. And I always thought because George was his father, and he thought he could get away with it. And he thought he had a big record deal, which he didn't have. Or if he did, 
the actions that he did blew it. So I got a lot of the blame for a lot of shit Tracy did because I lived in Detroit. Once he did that dumb shit, he took off and went back to California. So when I have to deal with the rest of the P-Funk band, they looking at me like I'm the one who did it. Right? The fall guy. That's how that happened. That's why they hated me when I finally got in the band. <laughs> but they still had they held that against me. I laugh about it with a lot of them now, and ain't no damn right. I'm not lying. A lot of shit Trelu did, Andre got blamed for, because I was in Detroit. The hub was in Detroit, uh, bro. So every, all of the work we did was there. So if he did some dumb shit and left, and they had to deal with me, then that's what happened. But I love my brother Tracy, and he did a lot of stupid stuff. I could tell you some crazy shit. Here's a guy. I'm supposed to pick Trey Lude up at the airport. He decides not to get on the plane. He decides to hitchhike from California to Detroit. He don't tell nobody. So I'm going to the airport every day to pick up Trey Lude. And this fool and hitchhike crossed the country. Made it to Detroit. Sick as hell, but made it. You know what I mean? Just stuff like that with this Trey Lude guy. But each time Trey Lude would show up, he had a smash song in his head. And he's such an awesome musician, such an awesome writer, that you have to forgive him for that dumb shit. Because the songs that flow through him, and still to this day, are brilliant. And I love Trey Lude. But my, my situation with that, that whole Trey Lude thing, I thought that I was, I'm from Motown, baby. I thought I'm gonna make my way from Motown and do some stuff. I had no idea that I had to deal with everybody else's idiosyncrasies before I even created my own, if you heard what I just said. Yeah. Yeah. But Trey Lude, yeah? And Daryl. Okay, Daryl. Daryl. My brother Daryl. And I called him my brothers because I lived in George's house. He took me in. Those were my brothers. You know what I'm trying to say? And my brother Daryl. God bless him. I love Daryl so much. This guy, I, used to, I was George's driver. Him and Trey Lou used to steal the car and go crash it up and do crazy stuff and don't tell me. So when when I when it when it come time to somebody getting blamed for it, it was me. Well, how could you let them take the car and do crazy shit with them George's kids? They could do whatever the hell they want to do. And I let them. The times the times I didn't let them when they stole the car or stole money or did crazy stuff, it was okay because they were George's kids. I am not George's kid. So I got a lot of backlash, even though in some of the interviews he say, I treat Dre like a son. You know what I'm saying? That, But it really wasn't fucking like that. Tracy and Daryl did whatever the hell they wanted to do, and that was that. I was there to clean up the mess, mm-hmm. and I and that was that. How, how much of it do you think was uh, due to uh, just youthful exuberance or substances or quirky personalities or being uh, entitled kids? I don't think it was a substance thing early on. It was not that. And I'm not going to lie on George or his children. It was not that. I think being privileged is definitely that. But I also know that when they came to Detroit, it was a playground. And when they left, they had to go back home. So everything that happened to Detroit when they came to record, it was a playground. You dig what I'm trying to say? I don't think nobody meant anybody any harm or anything yet. I think back then in the late 70s, I think it was just their playground 
and their father being who their father is allowed that to be the playground for them you know whether he was being dad or being I don't know I don't want to say I don't want to say anything negative but I think it was a playground for them and it wasn't about them just being asshole ass kids and you know just doing shit because George was their dad that's what they knew and I think they were trying to find themselves too you know even back then George uh, Tracy and Daryl questioned me about being George's son because it's like how in the hell we got to answer to you you know who are you even Georgie Jr. who are you but I was a responsible young man. George used to call me Domessi because I was a domestic individual as well as I was at 17 years old. So to answer your question, I don't think that he treated them any differently other than fucking kids. And I was just a kid around their age that happened to click and we, you know, became bros, you know. And I think we're still brothers, even though Georgie and Daryl are here. I just talked to Trey Lou the other night. You know, he wants to do some music. And I told him I might do it, but I don't know if I want to do it because it's not, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, we're not kids anymore. You know, so I don't know what he wants to do. Well, whatever Trey Lee wants to do, I'm down. It's my little bro. So I'm good. But to answer your question, I don't think they were acting on impulses that they understood. I just think that they thought that was the thing to do. And it was okay because their father was the fucking rich funk guy. And whatever they did was cool. <laughs> long as they didn't piss him off too much. Which I've seen them piss him off a couple times too. You know, so, you know, I think I, he had the way he both handled it. I just don't think he handled me the right way. That's all. I remember seeing uh, Trey Lou's name on records for years and years until finally... His record got out on Warner Brothers. I think it was not until the nineties. It was, was called it? "Drop the Line." Yeah, I think in the nineties yeah, it finally line. came out. Um, so it took yep. over a decade for something to finally get out there. Well, the song "Duck and Cover" I wrote, which was supposed to be the single. Well, Trey Lude and I wrote it together, but it, all of the songs that were recorded in the late seventies and eighties, they did not use. They Why? did not use them. Why do you think? You want the truth? Of course. This is truth and rhythm, baby. Well, here we go. <laughs> here we go, man. Truth and rhythm. I, I loved it. I think that those songs were not used because George Clinton used what he wanted to use for those songs for his own reasons, and he might have known Tracy wasn't ready to take on that responsibility of having a record deal or having something that um, responsible needing and didn't want to say that, but he didn't, I don't think George realized that it was a bunch of us in Trey Lou's band, my bro, it was us that took a loss too. So I think the reason that a lot of those, those songs didn't come out because Tracy was out of his fucking mind mm -hmm. and was allowed to be because he was that creative. But I also think it wasn't allowed because George was using a lot of songs for other projects, which maybe he should have did. If he invested his money, you know, now that I'm older, I can dig it. I don't doubt George for how he used those songs or how he did anything, but I do have a question with him as to why the first Trey Lude album never came out 
and why it took so long. I actually heard him in a meeting with me and a few other band members and said, you guys have too much energy between you. Any three of you in a room at the same time is too much, is what George said to us. You have too much energy amongst you guys. Now, we thought the more energy we had, the more delicate we was being. Go figure. Hmm. That was that. Wow. So, truly, never happened to 10 years later. Like you said, and it was none of the damn songs that we recorded as kids as Trey Lou. They all ended on the George Clinton family series. Guess who got paid? Not me. So, and there probably not of a lot of people. Somebody got paid, but he at least George did put the songs out, Scott. He put them out. So at least he did say the kids did this. You know, so I, I, I can't ask for more. The kids did that. I can't ask for more. Yeah, well, we're all this glad. This is before I was in his band. We're all glad we finally got to hear him, for sure. <clears throat> yeah, me too, man. Me too. Me too. Um, well, me tell, too. T t tell me then, uh, Andre, how did you make that transition? You said it wasn't easy. Making the transition to be part of the band, how did you navigate that? Well, you want the truth? Always. This is what happened. After, <laughs> this is hilarious to me, because I'm an old guy now. This is hilarious to me. Once I started being um, left in the studio at night when nobody else would show up, Gary, you know, Gary would go home when he came to Detroit or songs weren't, were not finished. And, you know, it may, say if George paid for a, a graveyard session, we used to call it, and it might be a couple hours left before the engineer will leave. I was like, fuck you, man. Keep George paying for it. Let me record some songs, right? So I started putting little songs together and giving them to him and Ron Dunbar. And, you know, they, of course they laughed their ass off. You know, who you think, who you, think you are? Oh, 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 check this out. After I started doing that enough times, I noticed that George started to listen to what I was doing. He fired me from, well, I've been fired from George about 96 times. I think nobody in the history of Parliament Funkadelic has been fired more than me. And, and, and I still came back to get fired some more. Okay. Document that. And George will tell you, I bet you he has not fired nobody more than me. And I will get to that later. But when I started coming on and doing my music, I decided to go and sign a production deal with a man by the name of Mr. Don Davis who owned United Sound Systems Recording Studio. Don Davis came to me and said, you know, Andre, why are you wasting your time writing for George and he don't want to use your shit? I will sign you to a $250,000 production deal and all you got to do is create the songs and we'll figure out how to go get you a deal after you're done. I came home and told my mom, holy fuck, I'm quitting my job. I'm finna go fucking record for Don Davis. George Clinton started hearing the songs that I was recording for Mr. Davis. And, and, and I think he finally figured out that I was a writer. I helped him get a deal with Don Davis to get some masters from him. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. Um, where George and Don made a deal where George could go back into the studio. 
But when I was working with Don, Don get, George gave Don Davis a song called Pizzazz that was written by George Clinton and Bootsy Collins. I was signed to Don David Groovesville. Don Davis took that song from, from George Clinton and put it on the project. And he tried to me going the song because that George Bootsy was listening to that bullshit. Right? But George realized I could write, and he started talking to me different. And I started writing a couple of songs outside of Mr. Davis for George, and, I, and, and it came down to this one called, What You Gonna Do, George? What You Gonna, whatever it takes, you, you, whatever, whatever that song was back then. And he said, man, if you have never recorded that, I would have never listened to you and took you on the road because it sounded like you, you called me out. And I go, I did. I what what year was that? that day what, what year do you think that was? I'm going to take a guess, bro, and say like, shit, 87, 88. You know, and I still didn't go, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. I went to 1995 at the Rock Class in Germany. That was my first real intro to the band. So I'm going to say 84, 83, 84, 85, around in there. Yeah, because Quickie was like 83 yeah. or something, right? Yeah, so this had to be a couple years, three years after that. Because Ron Ford, Ron Ford had a lot to do with that. George's boy, you know, was just like, like his little bro. Ron Ford had a lot to do with helping me and, and the other guys get that together. But, whew, that was that was strenuous, too. George needed a song. I had a song. And, you know, we went through it. And I still think I did the right thing, you know, no matter how it turned out. I still think I did the right thing by helping him out and I really believe George tried to help me out along the way, but it just didn't work because there was too many old heads who who he said to me, you know, these all these other people in line before you, I got to take care of them. I'm like, but they're not writing. Fuck them. <laughs> I didn't mean that, but I said that. But your first your first credit on a record, though, I think, is all the way back at Glory Hell is Stupid. That was my very first record on, on the... Um, and, and, I, and I was grateful for that. And I went to George and told him that I was very grateful for that. But let me tell you how I got my credit on that record. I and Ron Dunbar were tasked with keeping records of who, who everyone was on the sessions at that time. So even though I wasn't paid for this, I had the task of keeping track of everybody's names there were on that particular record with Mr. Ron Dunbar. I happened to be on that record. If I hadn't have been tasked with making sure whosever names and credits were there, my name wouldn't have been there. You know why? Because they were not taking care of business like that. I was a very responsible. Remember, I told you, he called me Do Messi. I took care of shit. The first time George Clinton gave me money to go buy the studio food for his singers and, and recorders, musician, I came back and gave his change. He told me to keep it. Nobody else ever did that. I gave him a change back. And he looked at me like I was a phone crack. It wasn't even crack back then. They were still coking and whatever the fuck. But I gave a man his money back and he told me to keep the money because everybody else keeps his change. Next. I think there must have been... Hey, hey guess what? Guess what? Guess what? It was about 60 bucks worth of change. So I was 
real happy with it. And you got to remember, I wasn't his driver yet. He was testing me. He was testing me, and I know it. And I passed. I was going to say, Glory Hill is stupid. I think must have had a cast of about 100 names to it. Um, there are a lot of people. Probably, and I'm pretty sure. Hey, bro, hey, bro, I bet you we missed a couple of people. I know we missed a couple of people because it was cats I didn't even know, you know. And you got to remember, my 17-year-old young self, they're looking at me like, who the hell are you asking questions? You know, you got to remember, I came at a time where half of those P-Funk guys were leaving him. Half of those guys were unhappy with their lifestyle. A lot of those people were happy with the way they were being paid. And here come my little ass saying, hey, you got to write your name right here. You got to do this. Who the fuck are you? That's what, I used to hear it a lot. And Ron Dunbar used to say, just keep doing what I tell you, don't say nothing. And I didn't until I started opening my mouth. But that took until like 1981. I shut up for two years. 81 was like the last year of the Parliament Funkadelic. Um, were you surprised to see it we, kind of go away at that point? No, no. No, Scott, no, absolutely not. Because you got to remember, like I said, I was driving those guys around. I heard conversations that Mr. Clinton never heard about the way they were being treated and they were, how they were not coming back. And how, you know what I'm saying? And they were just talking amongst themselves. I'm just a driver. So, yes, it was, I mean, it was surprised when things were. I'll tell you something else. If you can call George, I know you got that man's number. You can call him today when you hang up for me. You call him and say, Andre said, in 1980, when George won the Uncle Jam album, record label, he got a lot of money. He started paying his musicians off, whatever they were old, right? I sat in George Clinton's apartment in Southfield, Michigan, while he signed these people's checks and told me to deliver them to them. Some people were happy with they, what they got. Some people were not. Some people flew into Detroit to get their money, and they were not happy with what they got, and they don't understand why I was handing it to them. So I heard a lot of things I'm not coming back. I don't care what George does. What are you going to do from now? Whatever. I heard a whole bunch of things in that van, green van that they bought me. So no, it did not surprise me. But it did make me go, what is, what's going to happen next? You know, and I wasn't surprised. To answer, no, and I don't think anyone was surprised because you got to remember something. Before that happened, something else happened. So something must have happened to make those people not want to record with him anymore not want to be a part of that, or, or maybe feel that they weren't taken care of properly. I don't know. you got to remember something. I've only been with them a year and a half, two years now. So I don't know what happened from, from the time the mothership landed to the time it crashed. I don't know. All I know is George said, do this, and that's what I did. Because you got to remember, I'm still a geeky. I'm still going, whatever you say, Dr. Funk, we love you, Dr. Funkenstein. Your funk's the best. And I still feel that way, but I do 
see being older where they might have felt slighted a little bit. But I wasn't there. I didn't make the deals they made. You know, the deal, even the deal I was told what to do, even when I got in the band. So I never, you know, I didn't have no shit. I didn't have no say until I started saying something. So that's that. Yeah. To me. You know, they know they know what the deals they made in the 70s. And it might not have been great. But guess what? I bet it was great for people not doing anything and being a part of a monumental monumental situation like George Clinton's thing. If those older guys, and I call them older, like I'm talking in the 70s, they knew what they got into. You know, or if they didn't, then that's their fault. You know, but when I came into the band, to answer your question, you know, I'm sorry. When I came to the band, they didn't like it. Those ones I'm speaking of, because they just remembered, ain't you the same guy who just picked us up from the airport? Ain't you the same guy? You the same guy to hang out with Tracy and guitars and throw up in the restaurants? Yeah, but I didn't do that. Tracy did. But Tracy's in California. His dad keeping him away. They got to deal with Miss Von Fox, Drelude. So I got a lot of repercussions that my little brother Tracy did that I didn't do. So that's the question. When I got into the band, I, not only did I have to prove that I knew how to play and retain, I had to keep my composure, which I kind of failed at. I remember, I remember yeah. wondering, looking at the records and wondering, or really not knowing that Andre Williams and Andre Fox were the same guy for a while. Yeah, I think that was done intentionally. I think there's a, a lot of credits that I didn't get. I actually co-wrote Dufry's Gold that shape. Washington purposely omitted me from that. And here's the problem I have with Steve Ass. He came to my session, asked me to come help him finish that song. I helped him finish that song, and he gave me no mention. I'm the one that went and got the keyboard player and Fiddler to play on it. I played the keyboards first, but my friend was a better keyboard player. Hey, you play it. They counted me out. So a lot of things were Andre Williams, Andre Fox, Andre Williams. I think that shit was done on purpose. I give it for it now, but I had a hard time then. Okay? And they did that shit in the records. But I guess those old guys were starving, man. They do what they had to do. I ain't mad at them anymore. I can't, I'm not mad at them anymore. You dig? They, the old fucks did what they had to do to think they, what they had to do to survive. And guess what I always said? George is going to be the only one that survived from this shit. And I'm right. Other than Mr. Collins. Ain't nobody else made no money because they made sure nobody else made no money. But I think right now, in, in their hearts of hearts, I even believe, and I used to call George my dad, you know, Uncle Dad, all this shit. I believe in his heart of hearts, he knows, too, that sooner or later, man, you got to pay us. Something. You know, we stuck in there in the trenches from the, the year you talked about, 80, 81. Them guys had left. A lot of those old heads had left. He had to deal with us guys in Detroit. He knew we were green, but he ripened us up. And I think he needs to, to step up and say that. When, when was all. the first? I love him, though. When was the first time that you went on stage with the P Funk All Stars? My first, uh, my very first time going on stage with them was in, uh, here in Detroit at a club called a Black Orchid. And here again, he didn't have a band. I don't, I can't say he didn't have a band. I guess, you know, they were going through a transition period. George needed some money. It was a promoter here in Detroit, you know, and 
say, okay, I got some money, y'all can do throw together a show. This is what I think happened. Because the show sucked. The place got shot up. People were shooting at people in the club. It was terrible. That's about 82, 83 or something. You know, I think somewhere around there. Because my first real show with them, yeah, that had to be that. Other than 1985 at the Rock Blast in Germany when I was officially a member of the band. But my first time being on stage with them, no, that's a lie. The 20 grand was still open in the early 80s. And I snuck on stage with P-Funk, and they kicked me off because I snuck a bottle of liquor in the club. And, you know, you can't sneak liquor in the club. And they kicked me off stage or something. I don't even think that can even be considered me playing in George's band. No. The first time was that Black Orchid, you know, that was crazy. And then after that 1985 thing uh, in Germany with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, if I'm not, not mistaken, I was officially a band member. But in 85, I stopped trying to do that when I was recording for Don and Willie Davis and George came up with this idea and as the incorporated thing band, which was a big mistake because nobody made money but George. That was a big mistake, but that happened and however people perceive that, it's cool. 